1: You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking, are today's sporting competitions fair play? My guest was the fastest man on earth. At the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta, the American runner Michael Johnson sprinted his way to victory in the 200 and 400 metre races. He shattered Olympic and world records as he tore around the Centennial Stadium. In two very different disciplines, he dominated the track across a decade-long career. Since hanging up his glitzy gold running shoes, he's carved out a career as a pundit for the BBC and he'll be commentating on this year's Games from Tokyo. The delayed Olympics will be unique, not least because of the absence of spectators in the stands. But some of the perennial tensions are still around, crucially how to tackle doping, and what exactly is the definition of a performance-enhancing drug. Michael Johnson knows the fallout from doping scandals all too well. He handed back his gold medal from the 2000 Sydney Games when he learned that a relay teammate had cheated. The International Olympic Committee says it's determined to stamp out doping from the Games. But can it be done? Michael Johnson, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Thank you for having me. Good to be here.
1: The world knows you as a 4 time Olympic champion, a sprinter so fast you were called Superman, though I don't think you ever uh, contested that with him directly. Can you explain for us armchair athletes? What it feels like to compete at that level at the Olympic Games, that moment when you put your feet in the blocks and you wait for the starting gun.
0: It's almost indescribable. I don't think that there is anything else that could compare. You know, I, I often describe it this way by explaining sort of what it's not with with all due respect to other sports. And typically, as soon as someone says, with all due respect, they're about to disrespect something. Uh,
1: <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs> that is a phrase that occasionally pops up on this show.
0: Uh, but I'm a, I'm a huge sports fan, Formula One, NFL football, you know, global football, soccer, as we call it here in the States, uh, of course, athletics. But with Olympic sports, the difference is, is that there is no next year. So, you know, with all of those sports, if you don't win the championship this year, you can always come back and try again next year. The Olympics... You may not ever get another opportunity because four years is a very long time in in the sports world and and some careers don't even last that long. So the the poignant moment for me is when you're standing behind the blocks. And for me, it was always when this gun goes off in 19 seconds from now for 200 meters or 43 seconds in the case of 400 meters, I'm either going to be the Olympic champion or I'm not at that point. There is nothing else you can do but execute, but you want to be absolutely ready to execute in the best way possible. Well, then how do you get yourself in position to be ready to execute at your best when that gun goes off? And that comes down to preparation in the days, weeks, months leading up to that moment.
1: It's really fascinating for me as a former sprinter, you know, you'd have struggled to keep up because I was at the county level. Um, yeah. Thanks. Well, that's, thanks that, I, I,
0: I get the sense I was not supposed to laugh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I knew you would. That's the awful thing. But what the big difference is there? I absolutely identify with the way you describe the moment. Obviously, not the, the, anything like the level, but it's when it's when you mention the number of seconds that it, it gets very painful—the idea of the the nineteen-second two hundred-meter uh, dash that you did. What is really interesting to me is that you ran 200 metres, you ran 400 metres at the very highest level. It may not sound very much, but as anyone who's ever sprinted or ran a bit longer knows, there's a huge difference psychologically, temperamentally, and very few sprinters could do both. So how did you approach that difference?
0: A bit of the history of you know the sprints is that they're they're not all the same they are dramatically different your skill set typically physically will lie in one of those areas and you know i was never a great 100 meter sprinter and never was going to be that's not where my skill lies even though 200 meters is only twice the difference but the 200 to 400 meters is a dramatic difference i recognized early on in my career that that I had the ability to to compete in both at a world class level. When I started my professional career, in the first few years, I had to choose one, and that was always very disappointing for me. You know, being at a world championships, and this happened in 1991 and 1993 both of those world championships in 91, I ran the 200 meters and won it. But I'm sitting in the stands watching the 400 meters and watching someone else win this race and thinking, I could win this race. And as soon as those championships were over, the very next race on the Grand Prix circuit, I went and beat the world champion. You know, <laughs> But I'm not the world champion. I set out at that point to, to never have to make that decision again.
1: You're now best known to us here in Britain as a part of the BBC's Olympic Punditry team. You cross the Atlantic, obviously, by, by background. We hear it a bit in your accent. What's more fun, competing or commentating, when you can lean back and just let that experience and that expertise mellow a bit?
0: <laughs> They're very different. Um, both are fun. When I was competing, that was what I wanted to be doing. If for some reason I had been forced out of the sport and had to commentate, that wouldn't have been much fun for me. Now that I'm a commentator and I'm 54 years old, sprinting doesn't sound like much fun to me. <laughs> uh, you know, so I enjoy them both. Um, I enjoyed my athletic career. I mean, I, it was what I wanted to be doing at the time, and and of course, I knew that I, this is not the type of job that you can do in, until you're 67 years old. You know, when I retire from this job, I'm going to be very young. And I didn't I didn't think that I would be that I would get into to television, but. I love television, I love working uh, for BBC and and I I enjoy helping the viewer to better understand what it is that they're seeing and helping them to better understand athletes and better understand the sport.
1: And we're talking to you ahead of the start of the Olympic Games in Tokyo. It's a particularly difficult backdrop. It's been a very difficult road to these Olympics. Uh, coronavirus cases have been steadily on the rise in Japan since June. Tokyo is in state of emergency. A clear majority of people in Japan don't want the, the Games to go ahead. Do you think they should be going ahead?
0: They're going ahead. It's happening.
1: And where do you stand then, uh, Michael, on whether spectators should be allowed? The Games organisers have said no spectators be allowed. That does take away from something of the spectacle of the Olympics and the experience.
0: Whether or not the Games should go on or not, you could you could make an argument for both. I think Japan has less than 2%, or at least a few weeks ago, less than 2% of its population was vaccinated. And people have died from this virus. You know, uh, Millions of people have died from this virus over the last 18 months. So... You know, this is nothing to play around with. Um, so I would certainly understand that perspective of people who don't want the games and, and Japanese people who don't want the games. But it's not—it's not so simple. Not to say that the athletes, you know, who have trained want the games to go on. But I think that if the games didn't go on, given. The reason they wouldn't have gone on, I think most athletes would have said, hey, I get it, I understand it, it's out of our control. But there's a huge economic issue here too for Japan. I mean, they've spent billions of dollars on these games. They stand to to lose billions already and they stand to lose even more billions if the games don't happen.
1: Well, that's true from the perspective of the organizers. What about from the perspective of the athletes? I was thinking of taking you down a time tunnel back to the Atlanta games in 96, where you not only won two gold medals, just in case you've forgotten, but you broke the 200-meter world record and you set an Olympic record in the 400 meters. How much did the crowd's presence help you there? How much do you think that then... Takes away from the maybe this is going to happen anyway. As you say, the games will uh, will go ahead. But how much does it matter that that there isn't going to be that crowd?
0: The athletes that will be most affected will be the Japanese athletes who were looking forward to a home Olympics. And a lot of that benefit that you get from a home Olympics starts, you know, while you're training every day. You're reminded of the games because it's going to it's coming to your country. It's coming to your city, and there's this buzz. They, they've already been somewhat robbed of that. And then, of course, yeah, for me, you know, walking into a stadium in Atlanta with predominantly U.S. crowd supporting me, that was a huge buzz um, that those athletes will will not get. But once the gun goes off, once you get in there and you get in the zone, the crowd doesn't matter. The competition is what you you dream about as an Olympic athlete. When it is the Olympic Games, it's all about the competition and these athletes are the best in the world at their best. This is the pinnacle for them. They're going to compete regardless.
1: Lots is different, clearly, about these, these Olympics, absolutely first time that they've been held in, in circumstances like we have. But there are some continuities and one of them is doping and accusations of unfairness, obviously linked to that, which linger heavily over the Olympics. Let's, let's go back a little bit in time. When you were competing, was there a lot of pressure to dope? And how do you think that affected the sport at the time when you were actively on the track at the championship level
0: i tell people all the time that you know no one was actually going to commit the doping offense in front of another athlete so so i don't have insight into who was and who wasn't so i can only speak from my own from my own experience and from my experience there wasn't any pressure to use drugs now i again i'm speaking from my own experience I was fast from day one. I was winning the races from day one. So there was no, you know, my situation might be, be different and unique in that I never felt pressure because I was always the best. But I would say this also, that wasn't something that I was, I was prepared to do. It's just not something that I would do. It's cheating. It's wrong. And it's just not what I do. But I can't say that another athlete's experience is the same.
1: Well, that's really what I was going to come to in the sense that in you did encounter it. As you say, and you, takes personal responsibility. Um, and obviously, there are other pressures, one should say, on, on athletes who have been involved in, in doping and sometimes in the societies and the systems that they've been trained in. But in 2000 in Sydney, you and your teammates won gold at 400 metres in the relay and a few years later, eight years later, your teammate, Antonio Pettigrew, was stripped of his medal after he admitted taking performance-enhancing substances. You then handed back your medal, and it was one of the last of your competitive career. That sounds like a very difficult, very fraught decision to have to make.
0: It was an incredibly difficult situation all the way around, not just the decision that I made to hand back the medal, but my relationship with Antonio Pettigrew. So, so what happened was in 2000, we won the four by 400 meter relay in Sydney and won gold. I retired in 2000. So I'm into my retirement. I'm eight years into my retirement. I'm a five time Olympic gold medalist. That's who I will always be for the rest of my life as far as I was concerned at that point. And then uh, you may recall the big doping scandal here in America, the Balco scandal that ensnared a bunch of uh, track and field athletes and baseball as well and football athletes in the NFL. Antonio never tested positive. What happened with Antonio Pettigrew was he was called to testify on a grand jury for this Balco scandal, and he admitted that he had actually used drugs in 2008 years later. When he admitted that, I gave back the medal because... Not only was it because, okay, well, Antonio Pettigrew was cheating. He's admitted to it. So this medal is tainted. I've always been against drugs. But I had, the, I, I had my suspicions at that point that another athlete on that team may have been doping as well because of some comments that he had made. And sure enough, he ultimately admitted as well that he had been doping. So I had already given back the medal by the time he had admitted, and then all of those medals were stripped away anyway, as they should be. Here's one thing that I have to also always mention with that. People think relay, and they think team. And they think, well, all of your teammates were doping. Weren't you? And how did you not know? We're not actually a team. We compete as a team. In one moment, we come together to compete as a team. But those guys are, in fact, my fiercest rivals because this is an individual sport. I'm a 400-meter runner first, a 200-meter runner first. I train every day by myself as a 200-meter, 400-meter runner to run against Antonio Pettigrew, who is one of my fiercest rivals. So my only you know, experience with them is competing against one another until we come together and the U.S. team says, OK, we're going to put this guy, this guy, and this guy on the relay and on this particular date, you guys are going to be a team. So that's how that works. But it was it was very difficult because, again, I was eight years into my retirement when this happened and had a, a medal that I didn't feel good about of my five that I felt like was not won fairly and gave it back. And all of a sudden, through no fault of my own, I'm not a five-time Olympic gold medalist anymore. Now I'm a four-time Olympic gold medalist. And that was very
1: difficult. Yes, when you look at it like that, it does feel... It feels sort of brutally subtractive, doesn't it, from something that you had no control over. Uh, One thing I wondered about your view now of of doping, we've written about it for a lot of years, we're much more informed about it, I think, both in and outside the sport than perhaps at the time when I was watching athletics in the 1990s and and following the rise of, of some of the great performers. It now does feel like a fight with no end point. So if that's the case, this aim for eradication seems to be something that we're, it's a kind of wishing that the moon were made of green cheese. Or am I being too pessimistic?
0: You have to equate doping in sport with crime in society. There's never going to be an end to crime in society. It's the same thing. There are going to be people who are going to cheat. Sport is only a microcosm of society. People are going to cheat in sport. We're always going to have to have anti-doping measures in place. And we're always going to have to try to stay one step ahead of those who cheat.
1: Let's talk about the case of the sprinter, Shakari Richardson, who won't travel to Tokyo with the U.S. team because she is under a month-long ban for testing positive for cannabis. She says she used marijuana after she learned her mother had died. I think you've said you think the ban is stupid. Um, Why, given that testing positive for Marana is against the World Anti-Doping Agency rules,
0: so them's the rules. So my stance was not that the ban was stupid. It's a minor infraction and a minor ban. It's an appropriate suspension. If this had happened four months ago, we wouldn't be talking about this because she would have served her 30 days and she would have been back to training and would have competed at the Olympic trials and would be going to the Olympic Games. I think the World Anti-Doping Association has to do a better job of explaining to people why marijuana is on the list. And they have to review whether it should remain on the list.
1: Let's talk about what else is allowed and what isn't. You were known as the man in the golden shoes at the 96 Atlanta Games because of your distinctive trainers with the gold spikes, which I think are behind you, actually, on this call. I like to think you're never without them. (laughs) Just take them along in case... You might need to spread for gold. <laughs> they mean something to you, the fact that they're sitting in the case behind you.
0: Interesting story behind those shoes. Actually, we, we worked on them for two years. I, you know, I was not happy with the footwear that Nike was providing me. I felt like it was restricting me and limiting me from being as fast as I could be. And, and they came to me and said, look, you're obviously not happy with what we had. Let's work on what you do have and get you what you need. I wanted them to be light. I wanted them to be very flexible, but very strong. And they're like, okay, that's easy. <laughs> because I needed the type of support that I would need to be able to actually put the force into the ground and in in, in, in return, but also flexible around the bend, around the curve for the 200 meters.
1: But that brings me to, to that sense of advantage that People do argue about, and we, we're talking about this a lot more than, than we did as technology, footwear and other equipment in sport has obviously made massive leaps forward. Do you think that there should be a sort of cap on what athletes are able to, to wear and how they wear it? Because it, do, it seems in some senses, I know you're a great advocate of fairness and equality uh, in access to the sport, but only a certain number of athletes will be able to get hold of the state of the art products or have the conversation that you had with Nike.
0: There should be a cap, and there is a cap. And I think that the cap is not based on equality because everyone has access to the same equipment. Everyone has access. The same things that Nike's doing, Adidas is doing, and Puma's doing, and New Balance, and all of the shoe manufacturers have the same technology, the same access to technology, and the same things. And every athlete out there has shoes provided to them because no company is going to miss the opportunity to put their equipment on an athlete competing at the Olympic Games. So everyone has access to the technology.
1: Yes, but an athlete who comes through perhaps without such strong support, a poorer country, a poorer training regime, will not be accessing the very top level than of, in this case, footwear.
0: I mean, there's a spectrum, of course. I mean, there's some people that are not going to have access uh, because the faster you are as an athlete, the better you are as an athlete, the more you have access to. But the issue for me is more around when does the footwear and when does the equipment start to actually aid the athlete and and allow them to perform better than they would naturally be able to? Versus in this situation, my problem with the footwear was I felt like it was holding me back. That's why World Athletics, as an example for footwear for, for athletics, has caps in place for what you can actually do. And I think that that has to be you know, that, that's where I have an issue. If the footwear starts to get to a point where it's making athletes run like robots, where they're not having to do anything and they're actually able to run faster than they ordinarily would, that would be a problem.
1: Now, the International Olympic Committee has ruled that athletes won't be able to protest on medal podiums at this year's Games. So they can express their views elsewhere, unlike in previous games. So we we're obviously charting sort of a new territory here in terms of protest and sport. And in terms of that protest ban, Edwin Moses spoke to me on this show a little while ago. He has since said he thinks the ban is elitist. What do you think?
0: Edwin's right. (laughs) That's the simple part of it. To get into that a little bit more complex, I think that, you know, they're trying to stay out of politics, so to speak. And I don't think that that's right. I think that athletes have their, you know, it's their moment. And they should be allowed to use it as they see fit, as long as whatever it is that they are representing or using that platform for is in line with the Olympic values, fairness and equality and all of the things that the IOC says that are the pillars of Olympism. As long as it supports that and is in line with that, then an athlete should be allowed to do whatever they want to do on that podium.
1: Everyone sort of looks at this who is, has a strong feeling in favor of it and thinks, you know, there's absolutely no reason for an athlete not to be able to protest, make their views known. But you could see this turning into a completely different use of the podium, a kind of jumble of views, passions, aversions, special interests. Would that matter?
0: My answer, so? So what? To me, the, is- the-, the issues are bigger for a black person, and I'm a black person. As a black person... The issues that we as Black people in America face that many of the athletes want to protest and use that platform for, they're bigger than some other athletes, myself included, if I were still competing on the podium, that my moment might be overshadowed. So what? Because I'm going to tell you who's being overshadowed on a daily basis, regular, ordinary Black people who don't have the opportunities that white people in this country have. So my answer is, so what?
1: And has your stance been the same on that, Michael, throughout your career? Or has experience or even recent experience changed it, nuanced it? I'm just interested in that.
0: That's a great question. I have always been aware of the inequalities in this country uh, for Black people and, and others as well, but certainly as a Black person growing up here. And I think that for many of us, over the last four to five years, and certainly over the last year and a half, two years now, we have been awakened to the fact that while there has been a tremendous amount of progress in this country and other places as well, that one, there's still a very long way to go and a lot of work to be done and that there is a lot of racism that we hadn't even paid much attention to. Because, I'll give you an example with that. Typically, when you say racism, people think of a you know, white supremacists spitting in people's face and calling you the N-word. They don't even matter in the grand scheme of things. When you have housing policies and economic policies and job policies and companies that are structured in such a way to create this inequality where Black people don't have the same opportunities as white people, that's a huge problem that many of us had not really even thought about, weren't aware of, and it has just now been highlighted. And that's a huge problem. So I think that certainly for me, once you know, you can't unknow that, right? (laughs) And then you start to think, well, then what can I do about it? When I see young Black people and young white people, young people, of all colors out there marching in the streets for equality, for everyone, and I'm sitting here in my very nice house with a bigger platform than they do, then, of course, I start to think, well, what can I do to help? And how can I use what I have to help? So I think that um, certainly my position in terms of what is my role and what is my responsibility with this has changed Dramatically over the last over the last few years
1: mental health and sports stars this has really come to the fore in the case of Naomi Osaka who has said she wouldn't speak to the media tennis player to protect her mental health she wouldn't do that bit where you stand there you know, could win or lose and explain for benefit of television and clips how it was for you <laughs> I don't know. I I kind of went both ways on, on this question. Does your mental health to be taken very seriously? At the same time, do you feel that there is something that athletes owe their audiences? And how do we walk that line?
0: One of the things that stuck out with me when she made her announcement about the French Open is she said, I will not subject myself to people who don't believe in me. Well, now that makes it very personal. It doesn't present it in a light where people would see it as a mental health issue. It presents it in a light where people might see it as well. You are only about yourself and you want everyone to behave in a certain way, because that would suggest that if people were going to support her in the press conferences, she would have them. But if someone is going to be seen as not supporting her, she doesn't want to do them. That's how that would be seen. What she is saying and how she's explaining her position now, I think is much more understandable of where she's going with this. And I think that it's legitimate in that, hey, look, The press conference format has been positioned a certain way for years, and our position in sport and out of sport was, hey, you got to take it. It's part of it. It's part of your job. It's what you have to do. Well, how many things do we know of now where that was the way it was, and it's just the way it is, and you got to take the good with the bad, until someone stood up and said, well, do we have to do that, or is there a better way? And I think that's what Naomi Osaka is saying. Is there a better way to do this now than what we've done in the past? And one thing that I would just add to that is is that when I was competing as an athlete, in order for me to, you know, sort of get my brand out there, I needed the media. Well, today, athletes don't need the traditional media. If the fans need to hear how Naomi Osaka feels about the match after it's over, she can just go to her social media and put it out there. She does not need the traditional media. So I think the way the press conference works needs to be rethought.
1: Well, yeah, but her sponsorships in terms of tennis in a professional sport as opposed to amateur athletics, you could say that there is a business model and you either agree to work within it or you say early on, I'm not going to do that, in which case you probably are not going to compete in certain ways.
0: Well, I think that the business model has changed and certainly could change. I don't know that her sponsors necessarily need her to be putting her information out there in a press conference format, if she puts it out there through her own social media and chooses the outlets even that she wants to put it out there on, it's gonna get picked up still by everyone else. And now she has more control over the message. Well,
1: it is, but she, she can't ask herself testing questions. She could hire you, Anne. <laughs> Done. Do you know what? We fight? We fought ourselves <laughs> I mean, to a standstill you know. on this one, haven't we? You're absolutely right. But there is a difference I would possibly, at least let, let's get on this and pile in on this one. I would argue that there is still perhaps a real for people asking uncomfortable questions. Well, I would yeah. wouldn't I?
0: I I think so. I think there's I think there's a balance, and I think I think that what she's saying as well is that it should be rethought, and there should be a balance and there should be a different way. Not that there's no uncomfortable questions that are asked anymore. I think what she's saying is is that we can rethink how we do this.
1: Fair point. Now let's move on to your own life. After you hung up your—I was going to say—hung up your running shoes, but I'm sure you didn't, because you you still run and you you run for fun and you encourage others to do so. But your Olympic shoes. Uh, then in 2018, something happened that you could never have predicted. And I would guess, like a lot of top sports men and women, you might be even a little bit of a focused, oh, shall we say, control freak. And then suddenly you have a stroke, and that's really something that a sporting person, a healthy person would not think was around the corner what was the impact of that
0: that yeah, was surprising and yeah i think that uh, I, I certainly would not have expected to experience that i was in great shape at the time i was i was doing all of the right things to to keep myself from having any sort of cardiovascular issues didn't have a history of it in my family i seeing my doctor regularly all of those all of the things i needed to be doing in fact i was i had just finished a a training session when I had the stroke. But but I think the impact was, you know, for me is, you know, was on the other side of it, once I recovered was was helping other people and sort of highlight the, the issues around stroke and because it can be preventable for many people. The recovery for me was, I, I mean, I couldn't walk, I couldn't stand, I couldn't walk, my left side, my left arm, left leg.
1: So this was pretty serious. This wasn't, you know, the idea that strokes can obviously vary massively in terms of impact.
0: It was very serious. No, I'm, I'm almost three years uh, removed from it now. And it, it seems like it never happened. But it was very serious at the time. I was in hospital for a week. I couldn't walk, couldn't stand, had to relearn how to walk just to get back to my sort of mobility and lifestyle that I was, was, was accustomed to and being very active. And it was because of my experience uh, as an athlete that I was able to recover uh, quickly. I understood how to how to deal with the days where I would go and have my two physical therapy and training sessions and feel worse than I did before and like I made no progress. I understood how to get past that and come back the next day with the same amount of energy and gusto and positiveness. That's difficult for people. Um, And if it wasn't for my experience as an athlete, I don't know that I would have been able to recover as quickly or if I would have made a full recovery in fact it was also my experience as an athlete that probably saved my life because if you had asked me before the stroke if i would know that i was having a stroke i would have said of course yeah i would feel some you know extreme pain or discomfort and i didn't feel any of that i wasn't in pain there was no discomfort just something was incredibly off and i could tell because i know my body because as an athlete you you know your body and i was The coordination was not there. There was some just this tingling in my left side. And I decided, uh, my wife and I decided to go to the hospital um, out of an abundance of caution, really. I figured they would say, oh, you're having some weird cramping situation or something. Then it just got progressively worse. And it turns out, yeah, I had had a stroke. And it got so much worse over time. Had I stayed home and just tried to sleep it off, I probably wouldn't be here today.
1: Wow. You see many, kind of wherever you're listening, uh, around the, the world, I mean, campaigns and warnings about how to take a stroke or signs of a stroke seriously. And that is that is that that is the truth of it, isn't it? That if you don't act quickly, it, uh, the outcomes can be an awful lot worse. So you can consider that your personal warning there from Michael Johnson. Before I let you go, I was thinking if you can compete... And it can be in your own sport, or I'm going to let you range because we can do that in time travel. Any other sport, who would you like to compete against in history?
0: Uh, I'd be competing in uh, Formula One against Lewis Hamilton, but I'd be in the same car. We, we'd have the same, we'd have the exact same car, you know, because the car makes a difference. But in this situation, you know, since it's time travel and I can be whatever I want, I'd be as good as Lewis Hamilton, which is not not even possible, <laughs>
1: You're taking this alarmingly seriously. <laughs> like We've got the time travel. We've got the space-time continuum. We need the science section involved. And I think, because I grew up watching a lot of great track athletes, probably just about the generation before yours, crossing into yours. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to have a, a mix. I'd like to have you. I want to have Clancy Edwards. I'm going to throw in a few hurdles there, and I'm going to have Edwin Moses in there as well, Is it, if that's okay.
0: Absolutely. It's time travel. You can do whatever you want to do.
1: Michael Johnson, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
0: Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: And as we take a ringside seat from our couches this year's Olympics, who will you be watching and cheering? Any new sports you'd like to discover along the way? I'm an expert on the gymnastic scoring system makes about seven of us. Write to us and we have a new handle for you, podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. Our sister science and technology podcast, Babbage, explores the science and prevalence of doping in sport. So do have a listen to that on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to The Economist, well, there's never been a better time. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.